This episode, we talk about the idea that it takes a village to raise a child and what our interpretation of that phrase means for the role of government in our lives. We also talk about California's showdown with Uber and Lyft. My name is Jacqueline, and I'm just an American. It takes a village to raise a child. This is a phrase that is universally accepted and repeated by parents in my generation without giving a whole lot of thought to any sort of controversy or political ideology. It's a phrase that is so accepted as a universal truth that people don't really think anything of repeating it. What people mean when they say that it takes a village to raise a child and they repeat it with such certainty is basically reflecting the idea that parenting is a tough job and it is a job that absolutely requires a strong support system. As the mother of three young kids, I am so grateful for the strong support system that I have. I'm so grateful for my kids' grandparents, aunts, uncles, and friends who support me in so many different ways as a mom. Whether it is watching my children so that I have been able to work a little bit outside the house, or whether it is watching them and babysitting so my husband and I can have a date night every once in a while, to things like picking my kids up from school if I need someone to, or carpooling to dance practice or soccer practice. There are are so many different ways in which our family and friends have supported me as a parent. There have been difficult situations that I have found myself in, challenges that we all face as parents, and just having people to reach out to for advice and for encouragement is also really important. And there is also the fact that there are people in the community that I have reached out to and enlisted to help me engage in activities that help to bring up my children, whether it's teachers at their school or dance instructors or soccer and baseball coaches or Sunday school teachers. There are so many different ways in which we as parents reach out to people in the community and to people in our lives to help us bring up our children in which we as parents reach out to people in the community to help us in the bringing up of our children. So for a lot of people, I think they look at this phrase and they say, you know, hey, it takes a village to raise a child. This is my village. This is my community. And the support that I receive from all of these people is really important in my job as a parent. But there is another way that the phrase is used, and it is one that is actually quite problematic for our society. The interpretation of the idea that it takes a village to raise a child can also be that it is the responsibility of a society to raise a child. It might seem like a mere semantic difference, but it isn't. It's a complete difference in worldviews, and it's one that is very significant. The phrase itself originally came from an African proverb, but it was made famous in modern times by Hillary Clinton. Back in 1996, she released a book titled It Takes a Village. Progressives and liberals have always pushed for the idea that the village means government. It means government assistance in helping families to raise their children. We see this in the ever-expanding role of government in our lives, which is a movement that is very much pushed by the left in this country. The push for universal preschool and childcare, the push to nationalize public schools, the push to include certain moral and values lessons in schools in addition to learning about reading and writing and math. 
And when I talk about the values, what I mean, of course, are liberal values. The idea that boys can become girls and girls can become boys. The idea that sexuality is fluid and that young children really should be taught lessons and certain lessons about those things, um, which we can see in the curriculum that has been adopted in the state of California. You have situations that we have seen recently with the schools closed where the teachers who are engaging in virtual learning have actually stood up and spoken out, whether it's on Twitter or whatnot, and they have expressed concern that parents, and particularly conservative parents, are now going to be able to listen in on the conversations between teacher and student, and they're not happy that the parents are now going to be able to hear what those conversations are, that issues that they discuss, such as equity and inclusivity and all of these things that are being discussed in the classrooms, the teachers are expressing concern that parents will now find out what is being discussed. There was a school district in Tennessee that had parents sign waivers to say that they would not monitor and listen in on their child's virtual learning lessons. That's complete insanity. But this is the movement that we are seeing. We see this movement when it comes to teachers in certain situations that have had gender transition discussions with students behind the backs of those students' parents. They've had in certain classrooms, they've had gender transition ceremonies when the parents were not informed or asked permission about it. There are people who believe that, for example, if you have a six-year-old who has trans ideas, that that child, if their parents do not support and encourage that, that that child should be removed from the home. There are a lot of people on the left who absolutely believe that. They think that children should be removed from the homes of parents who they disagree with on ideological levels. The move by the left is always towards more government involvement in our lives, and they very much do that in the public school system and in the pushes that they are currently having towards more interaction with people's children at younger and younger levels. And what they do is they describe it as, oh, no, we're just trying to help. We're just trying to help parents who need childcare for their two-year-old because they have to go to work. And that is, I'm sure, a part of the equation. But I do not think that it's something that we should ignore, which is that the government is constantly trying to work its way into more and more aspects of our lives. This really is a fundamental difference between conservative and liberal values. For conservatives, the village is us. It is your family, it is your friends, it is your neighbors and your community and your church congregation. This is who the village is. We are mandated to help each other. And if somebody that we know and love is in trouble, we are going to give that person the shirt off our backs. We are going to step up and help them in any way that we possibly can. That is the conservative ideology. The liberal ideology is that we need the government to step in and do that job for us. We need welfare and universal health care. We need universal child care. We need free college education. We need the government to step into every single area of our lives in order to help us when we need that help. This is a distinction, again, that really matters a lot because any time that the government provides a service, it creates a dependency from the people. That dependency then gives government control. This is something that conservatives have been talking about for a really long time, which is the idea that the more free stuff you get from the government, the more control the government has over our lives. 
The left is constantly denying that that is a reality. And yet we see over and over again examples of this happening. One example is something that is staring us in the face and affecting millions of American families right at this moment. Case in point of the public school system. When the public school system was created, Yes, it was created for the reason of education. It was created so that children in this country would be able to have a quote unquote free education. Of course, it's not free. All Americans pay for it in our property taxes. But the idea is, is that whether you are a millionaire or whether you are barely making it, your child can go to a school for free for no additional tuition or fees. What happened when this become pretty universal, because today it is very universal, the vast majority of school children in America go to public schools. What has happened is, is that this has created a foundation that society has then built up around. As more and more children went into the public school system, which again was built for education, but the secondary consequence of it was that millions of American families now had free childcare Monday through Friday from eight to three. This made a difference. It opened up a lot of opportunities for women to start to work outside of the home. Now, it's not something that necessarily happened right away, but over years and years, as women started seeking employment outside of the home, one of the big factors of this is the fact that there is somewhere for their children to go and receive an education while being somewhere outside of the house. And that allowed women to start working more outside of the house. As families now started to more and more have dual incomes, the discretionary spending of these families increased. And as that discretionary spending increased, demand for all sorts of products and services across our society increased as well. With that increase in demand, supply and demand, we saw prices increase. Now, the cost of living is so high that it's pretty much impossible possible for so many working families to survive on one income. Now it's almost a necessity for middle class families to have two incomes. This is not just a philosophy that I came up with. Elizabeth Warren, of all people, actually wrote a book about it that is called The Two Income Trap. And she talks about this very phenomenon. So here we are. We have this entire society that has adjusted itself and that is over the years more and more built around the idea that there is a place for children to go during working hours. We've built up our entire lives around this. We have built an economy that really relies very much on this situation. And then from one day to the next, the government takes that service away. Schools in America and particularly here, like I always talk about in my state of California, schools have been closed since the middle of March. We are now in the middle of August. Now, yes, there's summer vacation in the middle of that, but we are talking about six months and counting. I mean, there is really very little discussion right now in the area that I live in about schools opening up anytime soon. So from one day to the next, the government shuts down the schools and families have essentially been told, figure it out. There has been absolutely no assistance for families in this country, particularly families where both parents work, to help them figure out this new situation in which they have now lost their child care and have now become responsible for their children's education. I don't really want to hear about virtual learning. Oh, the teachers and the schools are still providing this service because the truth is, is that 
virtual learning, the parents still have to be there. They still have to help their children. It is not the same thing as having their children in school all day. Now, there's a lot of teachers who have made the argument and said, you know, hey, that's not our problem. We are educators. That is our role. And we are not babysitters. And of course, that is correct. But just because that is true and that is the priority of our education system does not erase the fact that our schools provided childcare and that our entire society really formed and the way that our society functions has so much relied on that childcare that is provided by schools. You can't just erase that fact just because that was not the main intention of our education system. So from one day to the next, we now have a situation where that's just gone and the government has taken that away and there has not been one ounce of assistance to American families for the government taking this program away. There has not been any tax credits. There has not been any social safety net programs or anything set up whatsoever. The government decided we're closing schools. There's no consultation with the American people or the parents about what we wanted, whether or not we wanted schools to be closed. The government made that decision and they have not done anything in terms of reimbursement to American families for this service that for all intents and purposes, we are no longer receiving. So the government creates this service. They create a dependency on this service and then they take that service away and everybody is just told, figure it out. Now, somebody that I was talking to about this issue brought up the fact that, you know, hey, originally a lot of the schools were private schools and public school system and taxpayer funded school system is kind of a newer phenomenon. And what was interesting to think about that is that if your child goes to a private school and the school comes to you and says, you know, hey, we're not going to be open for anything except for virtual learning this year. If you as a parent say, okay, well, that doesn't work for me or I now have to figure something else out, you are not going to have to pay tuition to that private school anymore. When we are talking about private businesses and private institutions, if you stop receiving the service that you are paying for, you are no longer mandated to pay for that service. We see things in, for example, Disneyland, that they stopped the annual pass payments that they were receiving from all of the annual pass holders for Disney. They stopped collecting on those payments because they're not providing the service. The theme parks are closed. And so there is no way that this private entity could, you know, justify continuing to charge people their annual pass holder fees on a month to month basis when the theme parks are closed. And yet when we look at our school system, we the government closes the school system and there has not been one ounce of tax credit or a decrease in taxes over the fact that the service is no longer provided. If this situation doesn't make people stop and question the role of government in our lives, I really don't know what will. Democrats increasingly want to raise the levels of government in our lives. They really want the village to consist of government. What happens though when we when the government provides a service? When the government provides a service, it creates a dependency. And this dependency then is something that people just as the time goes on, they don't just rely on it more and more, it becomes a foundational part of their actual lives and of our, our society. Public schools are a foundational block of our society. I don't think that there's very many people who would argue with that. And the fact that the government can just from one day to the next take that away from people and everybody to just be left on their own, that should make us stand up and say, wait a minute, 
Is the government really the best solution for other areas of our lives? What happens when the government decides to provide universal health care? What happens when the government decides to provide free college tuition and take over all of those institutions? And then from one day to the next, they decide, mm, you know what? Here's this reason why we don't think that the hospital should be open. Here's this one reason why we don't think that doctor's offices should be allowed to be open. And you know what? Guys are just going to have to figure it out. How can anybody say, oh, that wouldn't happen? We never thought that that would happen with our school system. And yet here we are. One of the best things about conservatism, in my view, and one of the most important things that I think people need to understand about the conservative ideology is that it is based on the fact that if there is any way in the world that we as citizens, we as, as communities can provide a service and take care of each other, we need to do that. And we need to not rely on the government for that. If you look at the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, and you say, my village are my family, my friends, my neighbors, my community, that's fine. That is a completely acceptable and healthy way of looking at it. But if you say it takes a village to raise a child and in your mind, that village is government provided health care, government provided child care, government provided education. I think that it's pretty clear that that doesn't always work out very well. The minute you give the government an opportunity to come into our lives is the minute that you hand them over power over our lives. Look around at your life right now. Look around at your personal life over the last six months. Who has been your village? For me, it has been my close family. It has been my friends. It has been people who I know who are willing to allow our children to get together so that they can have socialization. I am so grateful for the friends that I have, for the people that I know who are willing to bring their kids around my children so that my kids have been able to have social interaction over the last six months. Now, I know that there's a lot of people who hear that and who are probably going to say, wow, that's really irresponsible. You're spreading coronavirus. You're a part of the problem. Well, you might believe that, but here is the reality. We are on month six of this pandemic and you know what's really bad for children? It is really bad for children to have complete social isolation for six months and counting. That is bad for children and it is far more detrimental for children than this virus, which for all intents and purposes, according to science, is not having any sort of negative impacts on the health of children at any sort of statistically significant level. That is important. So when I look around at my village, when I look around at my community, they have all been there during this really challenging year and during this really challenging time. Can we all say the same for the government? Our government has shut down societies, shut down businesses for months and months and months. And what did they do? They sent everybody $1,200 one time and said, yeah, here you go. Okay. They increased unemployment benefits, which was really helpful. And then they got into a partisan bickering fest over it. And now people who are on unemployment are not getting the full amount of what they were making when their businesses were allowed to be open. People are looking People who own businesses, people who work for the businesses, which are still not allowed to operate. And they're saying, hey, one or the other, either let me operate my business or provide me the assistance that I need. They are doing neither. How many people in the state of California alone have tried to reach out to our unemployment office over the last six months and never 
ever get through. I had one friend that it took her 600 calls. She literally sat at her table all day and just kept hitting redial on her cell phone. And it took her something like 600 calls before she got through to the unemployment office. Do we really look at government and say, wow, they just really handled this whole situation wonderfully. They just really made such great decisions and everybody is so happy and content and everything is doing really well? Or do we look at the current situation and say, you know, the government has actually created far more problems than it has solved with this pandemic. I think that it's really time for us as Americans to sit down and take a good, hard, honest look at who is in our village, who is our support system. If you're someone who doesn't feel like you have a support system among family, among friends, among community, I encourage you to change that. I encourage you to go out into the world, join a church, make some friends, join a community service project, find people who can become your community. Because when we get to a point where the only people that we have to rely on is the government, that is not a safe place. That is not a healthy place to be. These are the conservative values that I stand by and I think that we need to talk about and we need to spread more often. It does take a village to support parents, but at the end of the day, it takes parents to raise a child and it takes a community to support itself and it takes a community to care about itself because at the end of the day, the government will not be there to do so. So before I sign off today, I just want to say a quick thing about a situation that is taking place in my home state of California right now with the companies Lyft and Uber. So according to a recently passed California law, which is law AB5, I believe this was passed sometime last year. This law forces businesses in California to reclassify so-called gig workers or independent workers as full-time employees. Now, in our state, just like in many states across the country, but particularly in liberal California, if you are a full-time employee, there are a lot of compensation laws and benefit laws that you have to follow. And so a lot of people and a lot of companies have engaged in these contracts and contract work in order for the companies to avoid having to pay some of those benefits and, and agree to some of that compensation. And at the same time, people are able to engage in this independent work, this gig work, and make some extra money on the sides for their families. Some people do it as just kind of a supplemental income. Some people actually were able to make a pretty good living based on these situations and these contracts. With Lyft and Uber, this situation has been coming to a head because the state is requiring them to reclassify their drivers as em employees or full-time employees so that they will have to give them better compensation and benefits. Now what these companies have basically done is say, well, we're just going to stop operating in the state of California. And both rideshare companies have said that they will stop operating in the state of California if this requirement continues. I think that what we all need to ask ourselves is, is this really helpful? Is this really helping the average American person? The idea behind the law might have good intentions. It might be intended to increase the wages of employees for these companies and increase the compensation for drivers. But the reality is, is that companies have to operate according to what they can afford to do and how they can afford to compensate their employees. When somebody agrees to work for Uber, when somebody agrees to be a driver for one of these companies, 
they understand the compensation for their work. And many people have engaged in this work and found that it simply didn't work for them. The compensation that they received was not worth the time, the effort, and the wear and tear on their cars. And so they stopped engaging in driving for these companies. Having the government step in and require this law to be put into effect, which forces the companies to pay compensation that they are not willing to pay or not potentially not able to pay, is only going to drive those companies out of business. And it is only going to result in the complete loss of those jobs altogether. This entire situation is putting democratic policies of wages and worker protection laws on full display for their epic and utter failure. What we see now is all of these people who are like, oh yeah, we want to fight for these drivers. We want to fight for them to have better wages and better compensation. What What you have resulted in doing is to potentially eliminate their jobs altogether. Is that really helpful? Can we ask ourselves, is that really helping anybody? Is that helping the workers? Is that helping the drivers? Is that helping us as customers? No. Nobody is being helped by this. In fact, people are actually being hurt by it. We cannot look at laws based on their intentions. We have to look at laws based on their results. And the results of laws like these and other many other labor laws that seek to benefit employees and protect workers in so many cases end up resulting in job loss altogether. Now, it seems as though there has been a stay now that has been put into place so that these companies um, are not actually going to be forced to shut down as of right now. I'm not sure if it's something that's going to hold or it's going to be long term, but it's they were both threatening to stop driving in California this week, and they are now going to continue to do so, at least for the time being. The part of all of this, though, that is really interesting to me is that when I'm seeing comments on social media, when I'm seeing what people are saying about this, and and some people that I have talked to who agree with this law and agree with this idea of forcing these companies to pay higher wages, one of the things that's really interesting is that they're very confused as to the opposition to what they are doing. And the question that I have seen them ask is, well, how do we force companies to pay their employees fair wages? How do we do that if not for the government stepping in and doing that? Well, the solution is actually really simple. If a company does not provide their employees with adequate compensation, they're going to have a hard time finding employees. Nobody is putting a gun to anybody's head and forcing them to be an Uber driver, forcing them to be a Lyft driver. Nobody is doing that. As I mentioned, if you start working for these companies, start driving for these companies, and you realize, you know what, the the compensation is just not worth it, you have every ability in the world to quit that job. You have every ability in the world to say, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. And many people have. And if this company finds that they are having a hard time finding drivers to stick around, finding drivers who are willing to do the job, then they will be forced to make the compensation for their employees better or they're going to go out of business. This is how the free market works. This is how freedom works. This is why free market and capitalism is actually not only the best solution in terms of the quality of life that it gives to the people, but it is the only moral solution because it is the only solution that results in freedom for everybody. Nobody is forced to work for any of these companies. You have the choice to walk away. If you don't want to work for a company, if you don't think that the compensation is good, don't work for that company. And if that company finds itself having that many problems getting employees, they are going to be forced to change just in a natural way. 
The other thing that I think is really important to keep in mind as we're having this, these discussions about jobs and labor is that not everybody is looking for the same thing in a job. There is this mentality that every single job in America needs to be a living wage job, that every single job in America needs to have compensation that is you know, at a living wage, that needs to have benefits, needs to have vacation time. Not everybody is looking for jobs that have all of those things. There are plenty of people who have worked for Uber just as a way to pick up a couple hundred extra dollars here and there just to supplement their normal income. They love the fact that the job is flexible, the hours are flexible, and they can basically pick up rides whenever they it works for them. But if it doesn't work for them, then they don't have to worry about it. This is actually something that I personally can relate to. My job under normal circumstances that I work outside of my home is as a substitute teacher in the public school system. I had no intention of being a teacher in my entire life. That's not what I went to college for. It is not what I ever had in my plan. But when I had my three children and I realized that living in Southern California on one income was extraordinarily difficult, I knew that I needed to supplement my household income. But I don't need a job with medical care. I don't even need a job with vacation benefits. It's not that important to me. We get excellent medical insurance through my husband's company. And what I basically needed was a job where I could bring in a little bit of extra money every month to supplement our income. But it needed to be extraordinarily flexible. That was my number one requirement in a job was that it was extraordinarily flexible because I have three young children that I have limited child care for and who I need to be here for when they're sick or when they have doctor's appointments or other things that my children need me for. That was my number one requirement in looking for a job. And I found that being a substitute teacher fit that role perfectly. I can pick up jobs whenever I am able to work. But if there is an entire week where my kids all have the flu and I can't work that week, it's no big deal. I have no one to answer to. And it's perfectly fine with everybody involved. So for me, if somebody went to the school district and said, you know, hey, you have to provide a medical insurance benefits for your substitute employees and the school district, which it's public, so it's not exactly the same thing. But if the school district said, you know, sorry, we're not going to be able to really have substitute teachers in this flexible capacity anymore because we have to provide all of these extra benefits, I would be very unhappy, okay? Because what I'm looking for in a job is not all of these extra benefits. What we need to understand is that freedom for people to make individual choices is always the best solution. What we need to understand is that we do not always know what is best for other people. There are plenty of people who have been hurt by this AB5 bill, many people who have been hurt by it, many people who have lost their jobs and lost their livelihoods because the companies that they did gig work for are not able to hire them as a full-time employee, and so they had to cut them loose altogether. These bills that are passed, this interference in the free market that the government and that, quite frankly, the left in America is constantly in favor of, it is hurting Americans. It is hurting the working class. And it's something that we really need to be cognizant of. The final point that I want to make on this issue is that as I, again, was talking to people and engaging with people on social media about this issue, one of the things that really struck me was just that people really had never, ever thought of it before, that the solution to this problem could be simply free market. People were genuinely confused as to why in the world would you be against the government forcing companies to treat their employees better? It's something that on the surface 
sounds like, you know, any decent human being would want the government to force employers to treat their employees better. This goes back to what I've been talking about recently about the epic failure of Republicans in this country to adequately explain our position on things. I truly believe that the conservative view and the conservative approach to the free market, which definitely requires companies and businesses to to treat their employees fairly, but it's something that is done through free market practices and not through the government. I really believe that this is something that results in the best quality of life for everybody. It allows freedom for a company to say, hey, we need somebody to do this job for us, but you know, we can't afford to have benefits. We can't afford to provide medical care and pay family leave and all of this stuff, but it's something that we can pay a couple hundred bucks for. And then you have this person that says, hey, you know, I don't need all those benefits, but I could use the couple hundred bucks and I'm more than willing to do that job. That is a win-win situation. And the idea that the free market could be a potential solution simply has not occurred to so many and far too many people. Conservatives need to do better. We need to do better about explaining this stuff and putting our views out there because the These are the views that, quite frankly, are the best ones. These are the solutions that are the best ones. We see right now this situation in California, which is threatening the jobs of countless people. And why in the world Republicans are not taking this situation and putting it on blast, making ads that they put out there in the state of California. I know Republicans ignore California because we're a very liberal state. We're not really in play and they don't want to waste money here. But Take a little bit of money, make an ad talking about how Uber drivers and Lyft drivers are now going to be completely unemployed altogether, talking about how the free market solutions are the best solutions and just put it out there. Give people a little bit of education. Even if you don't win over California or turn California red, give people this information. We need to talk about it. We need to explain it to people because I think that when we do that, some people, not all, but some people it will make them start to think and it will make them start to understand. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps each and every week. Also, please share this episode with a family member or friend so we can help spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at JJAnAmerican. You can also message the show by sending an email to JJ at I'm just an American.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at I'm just an American. Thank you for taking a moment out of your day to talk about our village and the role of government in our lives. I'll be back next time for a deep dive into issues plaguing American life from the perspective of just an American. Music for this podcast was written and performed by Michael Beatty. You can find him on Twitter at Michael Beatty three.